Do you want to jumpstart your innovation? Applications are open for the 2022 Rosamond Innovators Program. Connect with people who can speed up your scale-up in health tech, subject matter experts, clinicians, partners, and investors. Deadline to apply is April 11th. Visit rosamondinstitute.org to learn more. So we do feel that um, that there is a level of there always will be a level of messiness um, that will be there just because it's being generated in the real world. That until there is a standardized approach to data entry, that it'll it'll always exist first and foremost. Number two is the fact that as long as you have strong clinical guidance in trying to parse out that data, is that it'll probably get you further down the path to where you need to be than if you didn't have that strong clinical guidance. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenmund Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Our guest today, Dr. C.K. Wang, has always wanted to have an impact on patient care, which is why he left the clinic to develop larger scale solutions and help more cancer patients choose the right treatment based on data. As Coda Healthcare CMO, he's doing just that. Through their analytical approach, Coda Healthcare is committed to making cancer care data-driven and the most simple it can be. Today, we talk about how CK is using his love of AI and oncology experience at Coda. We also discuss how Coda is making cancer treatment easier for the people going through the worst time of their lives. Here's our conversation. Welcome, CK. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, Christine, for having me. And so excited to hear about uh, your story about Coda Healthcare as well. And I thought it would be interesting. I mean, you have, you know, interesting background. At the same time, it's also not common. Like you're you're a trained oncologist, but you've gone to the industry and now you're at Coda Healthcare. Uh, Can you tell us more about your journey, how you get to where you are and why you want to be in the industry rather than being a clinical doctor? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think, uh, you know, as you highlighted, I started my career almost 15, 16 years ago in full oncology practice. And, you know, I had a, a slightly different uh, approach to to my practice uh, than I think most practitioners, most oncologists out there. And that was the fact that I was uh, given chances to actually learn the business of cancer care. Um, and so through my time uh, in practice, during it was it's been about 11 years, I had, you know, many opportunities to help develop cancer programs, start cancer offices. So very different perspective. And as I completed the first decade of my practice, you know, it was uh, call it a midlife crisis or what it may. But looking at the last decade of my life, looking forward to um you know, the next decade of my life and my career and understanding the challenges in oncology and cancer care and patient care that surrounded me at that time. Uh, the question that I asked myself was, could I see myself doing what I'm doing right now, day to day, in the next, you know, for the next 10 years and in 10 years from now? And at that time, the answer was a, was a clear no. 
And it was uh, based upon you know many different factors. I think primarily driven by the fact that I saw that my um, you know at that time being a clinician, my actual impact right was confined within the four walls surrounding my clinic and my office. And I wanted to have a greater impact on the patient care. Um, and so that led me to, to explore other opportunities. And incidentally, or maybe not so much by accident, uh, at that time, um, I, I came across um, a, a, um, what looked to me uh, at that time to be quite a puzzling, uh, sort of a, uh, you know, I was a little confused by, you know, what the job was looking for, but this was actually Watson Health. Uh, for those of you who remember Watson House. Um, and at that time, and this would have been about six years ago, um, Watson House was looking to apply artificial intelligence in the space of cancer care to help improve the care of cancer patients. And I thought that was a very novel uh, way of uh, trying to solve for a problem because if you look at you know many studies uh, over the last, five to even 10 years, there is a prediction, I think we're there now, of a shortage of oncologists, right? The baby boomers are getting to that age where they're developing cancers. Um, many oncologists are reaching that age where they're actually dropping out of the you know, workforce. And so I saw this technology uh, as a way to potentially help facilitate patient care. And also at the same time for me to learn a completely different uh, what was and remains, right? A, a huge focus uh, when it comes to tech, and that is AI, you know, machine learning, natural language processing. So that's uh, after a long debate. It was a really long debate, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of soul searching, so to speak. I, I, I left full-time practice at that time um, and was at Watson Health for five years. And what I, uh, and I, and I learned and I, and I, and I joke about this today is the fact that I probably know more about artificial intelligence than your oncologist should ever know. Um, and, and as many of us know, uh, the output from, you know, from this technology, this group of technology is based upon, um, the quality of the data on which it was trained, right? Mm -hmm. So after spending five years on the technology front, um, I developed a um, a very strong desire to to understand where that data is coming from, um, and to hopefully, especially with my clinical background and in the oncology world, hopefully participate and hopefully contribute to the actual improvement of that of that data, right? So that that data uh, that is being used going forward is as sound as possible. And that's what led me to CODA at that time. And I've been here at CODA for um, going on three years now. Yes. Um, thanks for sharing that, which gave me a lot of questions. You mentioned about there's a lot of things that you learned being uh, doing your clinical practice that make you feel like you can do more beyond just providing care to your patient that get you excited about technology, what are those factors that trigger you to like, okay, this is something that I should 
explore more outside my clinical practice. Absolutely. So I think the one instance that comes to mind, and this is a story I've told many times, um, was that I had a patient that, and he was a healthy, middle-aged Asian male who was diagnosed with colon cancer on his first screening colonoscopy. It was, it was a locally advanced, what we call locally advanced cancer. Um, and he had had surgery and he was in my clinic at that time, uh, trying to decide on what the next best steps for him, uh, were. And at that time, and as it is today, the standard of care for a patient such as him throughout the world was to receive six months of chemotherapy after surgery. Well, not surprisingly, he did not want chemotherapy. He's a, he's a 50 some year old male, you know, has a business to run, you know, travels quite a bit and really in the prime of his business and his life and really didn't want to undergo, uh, six months of intensive therapy and also potentially sustain the, uh, what could be lifelong lasting side effects from the treatment. And so, um, he asked me many questions and, and, not saying that this is the first time patients had asked me similar questions, but it was the first time where the questions really left um, a huge impact in, in the way I, I, you know, I think about oncology and the, the, in the entire clinical trial mechanism, right? And, uh, and that was that, hey, Dr. Wang, I, I, that's great. I understand this is the uh, standard of care throughout the world, but can you tell me more about that study? How many of those patients in that study were like me, Asian, middle-aged, healthy? And I honestly did not know the answer at that time. And right there in clinic, I told him, hey, let's, let's look into the literature. Let's pull up the study. I pulled it up. It was an old study um, that was done in the early 2000s. And, um, and it, to my surprise at that time, uh, and even in retrospect, also still very surprised is the fact that the study did not disclose the types of patients that they actually enrolled in the study. I couldn't answer his question at all. And, um, and so it, 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 I would say probably the only demographic breakdown that it provided were the sex and the age ranges of the patients. Well, Probably not surprisingly, he wasn't very satisfied with my answer. And what I could find, he subsequently went for a second opinion and a third opinion, which all recommended exactly what I recommended. And, you know, these are, you know, international world-renowned cancer centers. And he subsequently came back and said, you know, Dr. Wang, I, I don't think I'm going to get that treatment that everyone's recommending. I understand I'm taking my chances. It's a 50-50 chance, but I'm willing to take it. And uh, the good thing is the last time I saw him, which is four years later, uh, he was still disease free. So one could say that ah. he made the, probably the right decision for himself. And but I was really left with this big dilemma, right, of the fact that here I am practicing oncology based upon data that was not the most clear. Right. Um, and so that um, that presented itself as a as a challenge to me at that time is how can I impact, right, the greater cancer care or the greater healthcare ecosystem on a larger scale. Um, and interestingly, as, as you um, and, you know, many people uh, know today, right, the, um, the, the discussions about 
you know, racial diversity, right? Whether it's in cancer trials or any research uh, in healthcare, right, is a big focus, especially out of, uh, you know, what transpired last year with COVID. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is, you know, that has been a great focus, but I still think that uh, it's, a, it's a great thing that we're talking about it today more and more, but I think it's important. Uh, it's a very important topic that we need to continue to focus on uh, going forward as well. Yeah, so it's um that's I'm I'm glad that he made that decision, but at the same time, pretty gutsy because oftentimes people tend to follow what the doctor tell them to do. Question on your experience, your time at Watson Health. Uh, tell me more about that. Like, so you make that transition, you feel like going to Watson Health and can help you make a difference in terms of the data part. I'm sure and learning about the AI. What I guess. You know, Watson Health seems to be like, everybody talk about it, but it seems like kind of like a big black box. Being You being the insight, maybe can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so absolutely. So the um, the, the, the goal, right, of, of, of Watson Health at that time was to leverage uh, artificial intelligence, uh, Watson, um, that was previously developed. Um, in, and, and try to see if Watson um, can help usher in a new era of basically technologies and platforms that can that can assist uh, doctors at the point of care. And now that was the project that I was focused on. Uh, Watson was being used, you know, in many different facets. You know, one to help try to match patients to clinical trials. One to help uh, drug companies. Uh, potentially, you know, find potentially potential new targets as they go that, down the R and D, you know, path. Uh, but mine was specifically to help oncologists um, make hopefully better decisions, uh, or to confirm that they made the right decision. And that was very, very appealing to me. And at the beginning of our discussion, I I had highlighted that there were there there were uh, I guess uh, factors happening at that time in the oncology world that also um, I guess pushed me right uh, down this path, and and that was the fact that uh, back then and today, uh, even more true is this explosion of new therapies, new uh, you know very novel therapies, right, uh, for the treatment of cancer. And one can say that depending on which disease you're talking about, these new discoveries and approval and and actual and, and actual drug approvals have happened at such a pace that. Um, I, as a practicing oncologist, was not sure how how practicing doctors were able to keep up with that data going forward, or would be able to keep up with that data. So the promise of a new technology, in this instance, AI, to help guide that decision making, um, was you know really uh, you know was you know made sense to me, made a lot of sense to me, uh, and it still makes a lot of sense to me today. And so that said. Um, the um, you know the project at that time was um, was to help develop um, these what we call clinical decision support right um, responses for oncologists at the point of care and and what I did during that time I was one of the earlier oncologists well I was one of the few oncologists that joined the project earlier on. So even though I joined a team that was supporting our customers, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about the different components of the technology. 
the the actual you know te- well the actual uh, technology behind you know um, the actual products and also to work with folks uh, that were actually working on uh, refining that product. Cool. And so my next question, maybe you can tell us a bit more about Coda Healthcare and what drawn you to join Coda Health. Sure, absolutely. I had um, known about Coda for actually uh, quite some time now, and what appealed to me uh, and what I found, you know, fascinating about Coda was uh, its promise, or I would say, uh, its work to try to make sense out of all the clinical data that oncologists like myself back in practice were putting in as part of, you know, routine patient care. This is what we call real world data, right? Real world data is any data that is actually generated outside of a clinical trial setting. So CODA was founded 10 years ago by a group of oncologists who essentially wanted to understand how cancer patients were being cared for in their practice and quickly realized that a lot of the information that we're looking for, much of that information were residing in the unstructured format within the patient's medical record. Unstructured meaning there are essentially free text information. And they, um, and the reason why they wanted to understand uh, how patients were being cared for was the fact that they hoped that understanding the care patterns uh, amongst their providers can help them decrease unwarranted variation in cancer care and hopefully thus leading to improved patient outcome and hopefully decreased cost of care. The concept, what we call today as value-based care. And so that was, that was how CODA came to be. And that vision and that use case of the data, I found it very appealing as I was one of those clinicians that was generating all that data. And, and I historically have thought about, about the, you know, I've thought about the medical record system today as sort of a dresser drawer with a lot of different drawers. And we're just shoving data into one drawer here and there and everywhere. And before we, you know it, I can't find where that data went, right? And so we're frantically pulling out all the different drawers to find it. And at the end of the day, I cannot make any sense of that data. You know, that was actually the premise of the um, high, uh, it was called the um, High Tech Act of 2009 that essentially accelerated clinical medical record system adoption as we know it today. Um, one of the promises, right, of a actual repository of medical records is the fact that we can glean insights and use them to better understand what is going on in the real world and hopefully using that knowledge, all of that insight to help facilitate drug discovery or improve patient care. And I will say that since the passage of the high tech act in 2009, we haven't really fully realized the potential of this data. And as CODA was working in the depth of that data, it uh, it really, uh, you know, I was really drawn to it, right, to better understand how we can make better sense and, and, and essentially curate better data and to help help the healthcare industry, you know, better use this data 
that we're actually pulling together. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. You mentioned earlier about the, the outcome from the analysis that is based on what the data that you have, the quality of data that you have. And you earlier saying, you know, patient data oftentimes is, you know, like you're saying, a free data, you know, oncologists type in what, what care they provide and how much cleanup do you have to do in order to put it in an organized way that can help you make an informed decision? That's an excellent question, Christine. I will say that the effort today remains quite high until clinicians are documenting in a, um, in a standardized format. I think there'll always be a certain level of cleanup. And I will say that you know, most of the clinical records that have been generated uh, over the last decade, most of them were generated for a very different use case. Right. And that was essentially to help doctors get paid. And they weren't used to really um, drive anything else but that. Um, and so what we have found is that the older the data, the more, quote, messy it is. And there are times where we just cannot make sense out of it. Um, however, even the more recent data can be messy. And, uh, and it's by no fault. It's really no one's fault. Um, I would say that, you know, I myself probably, uh, you know, caused, you know, many of, you know, you know, these issues too. I had a busy clinic. I didn't really go back to proofread what I put in. And before you know it, I put in information that basically either didn't make sense uh, or, um, or in, in, you know, when it comes to the oncology care, I've essentially assigned two different stages to a, cancer, to a patient's cancer. And so um, the, the effort is quite high. And at the end of the day, what's absent will be absent. And there, it's almost impossible to go back to, quote, fill in the gap. Now, then this is where we here at CODA believe that because these records are being generated by a clinician in a clinical setting, it's very important that what we do when it comes to data abstraction uh, in the process of pulling out this data is that it is guided by folks who have clinical understanding of the subject matter. Because it's truly at that time when someone like myself, right, let's say in that one example that I highlighted with two different stages for a patient, is that many times it requires someone like myself, along with my team, to go back into that record to try to figure out exactly what is the correct staging. And many times we can find the right staging. It was just something that that clinician at that time just accidentally, you know, left it in. Uh, maybe it's an old staging that they forgot to remove. Um, and so, so we do feel that, um, that there is a level of, there always will be a level of messiness that will be there 
just because it's being generated in the real world, that until there is a standardized approach to data entry, that it'll, it'll always exist, first and foremost. Number two is the fact that as long as you have strong clinical guidance in trying to parse out that data, is that it'll probably get you further down the path to where you need to be than if you didn't have that strong clinical guidance. So I'm just trying to understand, I mean, like going back when Coda just started, I'm sure that they get the data from some organization as a point one, uh, point, uh, point zero, and then using that data to build the algorithm. And what you're saying, the clinical guidance, that's when it comes to with something that's more like cleaner information that to overlay on the patient data, even though the patient data can be messy. Is that what you're saying? That's right. So, so think about it as data transcription. That's probably a very straightforward way, to, way of thinking about it, that you have a source data, and but that data has to be tra- transcribed or transformed into a structured format. And that transcription today is, is happening, right, both with technology and actual individuals looking at that clinical information and essentially transcribing that fact out of the EHR with the medical record system into the structured format. Um, and it's during that process that, that we approach it with a very, uh, very heavy clinical lens, so to speak. And so, so that we can hopefully, at the end of the day, abstract the information that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a little bit about the value-based care. Um, so what is the value proposition for Coda product for the payer and for the providers, which eventually impact the patient outcome? Absolutely. So today, most value-based care models or many of the value-based models uh, that we have participated in here at Coda have involved both a payer and a provider who are working together to navigate that journey together. And historically speaking, payers only have insight into what is happening at the point of patient care through claims data. And claims data is very elementary from my, uh, from my perspective. It only can tell you, it only tells you a transactional or gives you a transactional picture of what's happening on the ground. And it may not be accurate because the coding could be off or it may not be complete. And so most payers will tell you they can glean very little into exactly the nature of these patients on the ground from claims data. In order to have a better understanding, right, that's when the, well, that's when the clinical data comes in. That's where CODA's abstraction of that clinical data comes in. That, look, um, I'm going to use a hypothetical example here. This institution, you know, is giving a lot of expensive chemotherapy. Why is that the case? And it could be the fact that may perhaps these patients have more advanced disease, more more complicated disease, but that information is hidden in that clinical information that cannot be uh, that you cannot glean from the claims data. And so that's where this data is being used is to help, help payers better understand why a provider is doing what they're doing. And I think probably one thing to, um, you know, to, to say is that, you know, cancer care is expensive, period. And 
it's probably most of the care that's being delivered is probably warranted, right? What we're trying to do, I think, and I think the um, the the the, the concept of value-based care, right, is essentially, as the name states, is to deliver the highest value for the cost. And 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 this is a very nuanced and very difficult discussion that typically happens between the payer and the provider at the time of the discussion. But I would say though that I think value per cause is, in my opinion, uh, it's a philosophical debate, right? It's a, it is, it gets down, you know, uh, not just philosophical, but, you know, um, ethics, right? It's very difficult, especially when it, uh, when it, uh, actually afflicts, especially when you're talking about uh, a potential life threatening disease. So that's why as more, the more information one has, to make a decision, i.e. the clinical data, we feel the better it is uh, so that everybody in that discussion can hopefully work toward in the actual desired outcome. So maybe um, help me understand the current situation right now before CODA. So when somebody has a cancer, they want to see the doctor, the provider say, you need to get this XYZ treatment. And then they they got that treatment and they filed a claim and then the insurance company, the payer look at it. It's like, okay, this patient has this disease. This is the treatment. Well, you know, I think we do reimburse for this sort of treatment and then we make that payment. Is that how current? So how, with this new information from that CODA provide, how is that going to change how the payers behave versus how the providers behave? Sure. No. Um, so this data, um, I think the discussions about value-based care is, in my opinion, very still very early on. There, there's been many attempts throughout the recent history of medicine of of trying to control cost, and I think this is just a, a um, sort of a new version of the same discussion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and now what uh, what what uh, what the focus is is trying to it's trying to assign value to a certain um, you know, certain item, so to speak, and or certain dollar value, right? And also to understand and to to hope that uh, that providers are giving the right treatment at the right time to patients. So this information is to essentially help align the payers with the providers, so that the payers can say, yeah, you know, your cost may be very high, but your your care is appropriate, mm-hmm. right? Whereas before, they would never know if it's appropriate or not. And obviously, this data can arm the provider to ensure themselves that they, that their doctors are doing the right thing, right? Um, because I think that providers at the end of the day really want, really are here to do the right thing. And we all believe we're doing the right thing. Uh, we're the best thing for our patients. But in a way, without that data to really back that up, it's just someone's gut feeling, right? And we feel that, you know, data in that instance could be very powerful, very powerful. Mm-hmm. So going back to your, you know, your time when you tell me the story about your patient that decided to forego the, the treatment, how does uh, the technology that CODA has help to come to that same conclusion without having that patient feel like, okay, I'm going to do my own research and homework. 
<laughs> no, absolutely. So, so what, what we, what we do here at CODA, um, is that we work very frequently with oncologists and we essentially abstract all records for a given disease and we put it in that structured format so that, uh, that provider's data science team could make sense out of it. Right. And, and this is, this is what I consider to be, I would say the holy grail where the, you know, ultimate use case of real world data is to help drive decision making at the point of care. So when, so this data is essentially returned back to the provider so that they can understand how care delivery is happening. Now, I think that to better understand this, I think it's important to under, to know that even though the practice of medicine is guided by clinical trial evidence, there's a lot of gaps in that evidence. A lot of gaps that no matter how hard you search, you will never find an answer. And, and it's because of the fact that clinical trials are designed with very specific questions in mind, right? And so the premise, right, of the value of real world data is the fact that despite the inability to find evidence to support how you would care for a patient in that scenario, the doctor is doing something no matter what, whether it is her anecdotal experience, consulting with a, you know, with a colleague or an expert, something has to be done with a patient and that it is at when you aggregate that information together is then you start filling in the gaps between the clinical trial data, right? So now, hypothetically speaking, let's say if I had access to all of my practices trial, you know, all of my practices clinical data for colon cancer at the time when the patient asking that question, it's foreseeable that I can say, actually, you know, over the last five years in my practice, in our practice, we have seen X number of patients like you and how many of them chose therapy, how many of them didn't, and how they did. Mm-hmm. And that is really, truly, I think, um, I, and as, you know, as an oncology provider, I think that would be so wonderful if we're able to provide that type of information back to the provider and back to the patient. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. That was, uh, uh, I learned a lot from how all this data works. And I'm, I'm very uh, hopeful, optimistic, because you were saying this is still the beginning of, uh, of uh, utilizing all the real patient data for a lot of the decisions. So I'm looking forward that by the time I get some diseases at some point of my life, hopefully <laughs> things are uh, have a lot more resources for a lot more people. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Christine. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.